Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. I'm your host, Vankivia Garner. Thank you for joining us today. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about challenges justice-involved students encounter while enrolling in college universities and different recommendations um, for supporting justice-involved populations as they are on college campuses or just even going through the process of higher education. Um, so for today with me, I have Dr. Bradley D. Custer, who is a senior policy analyst for higher education at American Progress. He writes about a wide range of policy topics related to access, affordability, and accountability in the U.S. higher education. He specializes in studying policy barriers that inhibit criminal justice system impacted people from enrolling in and completing college, and he advocates for expanding college access and funding for students in prison and beyond. Before joining American Progress, um, he worked at two public universities in a college in a community college as a student affairs professional in the areas of student conduct, Title IX, student activities, and student success. Um, so not only does he have research experience, but he also has a very practical experience of working in these areas. So he's seen some of these things um, in person. Um, so without further ado, I do want to thank Dr. Custer for coming on and just talking going to engage in us with a conversation about this topic. Um, more Life is really appreciative to have you on here and just to learn more about uh, how we can support justice-involved students. Hi, Venkavia, and uh, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. Um, one of the things like I always like to do before we dive like into our actual conversation is I always like to ask people kind of what got them involved in the particular research or the particular work that they do. Um, do you care to share like what sparked your interest in this particular area? As you mentioned in my bio, my career started in student affairs administration, which is the profession of people who help college students, we're, we're college administrators essentially. And my first ever job was working in an office that ran the college admissions process for when students checked yes on the criminal history questions on the college admissions application. And so there was a whole process behind that that I got to observe um, and participate in where we reviewed the applications of those people. Sometimes we brought them in and interviewed them. And we ultimately had to make a decision about whether the university was going to admit that person or not admit that person or admit them but put conditions on them. And that opened my eyes to the policy barriers that justice-involved people face. And ever since then, I've been working with those students, I've been studying their experiences, and I've been advocating on their behalf um, to make sure that colleges are accessible and affordable to justice-involved students. Okay, so you um, you were working in a particular area that dealt with the admissions part of this, um, and that's kind of how you got interested in this. So, and you were talking about you study their experiences. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about? I guess before we go into experiences, one thing I also like to lay out is um, 
just to give the audience a picture of what we're talking about um can you give us some key findings as it pertains to like justice involved students um at universities or even just the ineligibilities that they may encounter this is a good place to start in fact let's even back up and say what is a justice involved student i think your listeners know what a justice involved person is um, and in this case uh, a justice involved student would be a person who's enrolled in a college or university outside of prison and who before they went to college had some involvement in the criminal justice system for me, typically that means having at least one felony conviction on your record. It could mean misdemeanor convictions or even a history of arrests. But for the most part, the felony conviction is the piece that um, is, is the most common and causes the most problems. Another group of people that we might talk about today who I would also describe as justice-involved students are, are people who are currently incarcerated who are enrolled in a college program. I would say they are also justice-involved students, but I usually use a different term to describe them. I usually just call them incarcerated students. So I think of uh, students in prison as incarcerated students and students outside of prison as justice-involved students. Uh, so that's just some sort of definitions there on the terms that, that, that I'll use today. And you know, as far as, as the barriers, um, you know, the first one, uh, I think is most important, and that's what I sort of talked about right at the beginning, which is admission. That's your entry into college. Everybody has to submit some kind of admissions application. And a 2015 review of all nonprofit four-year universities found that about 72% of colleges require criminal history information during the admissions process. Um, if you break that down by type of universities, about 58% of public universities and 80% of private universities have some kind of criminal history question on their admissions application. Um, it's a lot. That means people with criminal convictions, um, as you're trying to enter college, at least a four-year university, you're likely to encounter that question, and we can talk about the whole process that happens after that happens. Um, now, that statistic doesn't include community colleges. It's much, much less common for a community college to ask about criminal history. It does happen, and there are some other barriers where that can pop up at, um, at a community college. Uh, but this is definitely a, a major challenge of access uh, for justice-involved students. And so if we're just thinking about, if we just started like the very beginning of the process, uh, maybe that might help and give the audience, um, they'll be able to follow along maybe better. Um, so right now we're at admissions. Can you talk to us about those challenges that you're talking about here related to just uh, applying to the school and what does that, and kind of lead us into that conversation of what does that process look like afterwards? This process is going to seem very similar to conversations you've probably had on your podcast about applying for housing, applying for a job. The first thing that you see on that admissions application is that question, do you have a felony conviction? Or it could even be something more specific, like do you have you, have you ever been arrested or, or something like that? Um, and what we know from research on this topic and research in general is that 
that question scares people away. So right off the bat, people look at that and they say, never mind, I'm not even going to submit the form. And that's a major problem. For the people who do uh, feel brave and check that box honestly and submit the application, it kicks off a whole process at most universities. Um, it, it varies somewhat, but the general process is that a committee of campus administrators will review that information and they will request more information from the, the college applicant. So usually the college applicant will have to maybe write an essay that explains um, why they checked the box yes. Um, they might have to provide documentation from their court um, hearings. They might have to provide documentation from their probation or parole officer, um, all to make the case as to kind of what happened and why should I be able to get into college? And so university administrators make the decision, yes or no, or sometimes it's it's a yes, but, and that but might be adding additional restrictions. So it might be, yes, you can enroll in college here, but you can't live on campus. Or yes, you can enroll in college here, but you can't go uh, into certain buildings or certain parts of campus. Or yes, you can enroll here, but you can only enroll online. You're not allowed to actually come on campus. And so, you know, just right off the bat, um, uh, justice involved students are facing that barrier. Even if they're academically qualified, they could be denied admission or at least sort of restricted in their ability to fully participate in university life. And I'm thinking, um, I guess I was just thinking here while you were talking about all the different processes or information that they would have to gather to even go through that process. I imagine that that is overwhelming. And I'm wondering, in your experience of studying their experiences, um, have you ever gotten any idea of um, what type of psychological experiences they may be having, just having to go through that and get all that information? Absolutely. And we know from um, my research and other research that students, after they've started this process and after they're sort of asked to start providing more information or submit an essay or sit for an interview, that they drop out of the process. They say, never mind, I'm not going to go through this, either because they're afraid that they'll be denied or because they feel the process is unfair or too intrusive into their lives. So my very first study I analyzed the admissions essays of, of these students. So these were the essays, not just your regular college essay. This is the essay where they were asked to explain what happened during the incident that resulted in their conviction and what have they done since. In other words, it was sort of like a, an essay on, on why, should, why should I be let into college despite my conviction. And um, you know what I found, of course, is that many applicants were very distressed they really expressed how distressing having to go through that process was, how unfair they felt it was. You know, for some people, their convictions were really, really old. And they're saying, why do I still have to, you know, account for this situation that happened to me a long time ago? Um, and so it is, it is very um, difficult for applicants to go through. And that's why there is a, a high attrition rate, which is the rate that people drop out of that process. And so now, okay, we've, we've kind of sat here and we've talked about admission. Um, and so let's, I guess if we're 
just using it as an example of we we've made it through the admissions process. I've gotten all my information. Um, I've turned it in. I've gotten to the interview. Um, I guess kind of what happens there or, or is there information that we need to discuss there as far as the barriers that may come into play before we actually start our enrollment? I think the next question after um, admission is the same for every college student, which is how do I pay for it? Okay, now I'm in, how do I pay for college? It's a really complicated problem in the United States because college is too unaffordable for too many students. And for a justice-involved student, it may be worse. Um, in some states, well, I should say about half of states, um, financial aid grant programs are unavailable to justice-involved students. Now, that is mostly if you are incarcerated. So in most of those states, the rule that blocks financial aid is for if you're incarcerated. Once you're not incarcerated and you go to college, you can get access to state financial aid. Um, but there are a handful of states where if you have any felony conviction or if you have a particular felony conviction, you cannot get one or all of the state financial aid grant programs available in that state. Fortunately, there are now fewer barriers to federal financial aid. So that's your student loans and your Pell Grants, which is really important for people from low-income backgrounds. Um, just a couple of years ago, Congress um, changed the law that required people to disclose certain drug convictions on the free application for federal student aid or the FAFSA. That's the form college students fill out when they want to get loans and grants. So now, as of right now, there is no longer a question on the FAFSA about drug convictions. Um, and there are no other restrictions for someone who is not in prison to be able to access loans and grants. So that's the good news. But like I said before, there are still some restrictions in getting state financial aid if you're a justice-involved student. Do you happen to have any like examples of states that you know of that uh, demonstrate some of those barriers? Absolutely. So um, listeners from Florida probably know really well a program called Bright Futures. It's a really common and kind of popular scholarship program. That program is completely off limits to everyone with any felony conviction. It's a, it's a straight ban. There's no ifs, hands, or buts. It doesn't matter if you're incarcerated or not incarcerated. Um, some other programs um, are a little bit more specific and maybe don't affect quite as many people. There are some need-based grant programs in Texas where if you have a drug conviction, you can't access it until a certain period of time after you are done with your probation and parole. So it's kind of like a timed period. Uh, there's like a timeout period. And then after that, you can get access. And then in some other states, it's just sort of a sprinkle of individual programs that have restrictions that are based on uh, particular convictions. But um, those two, Florida and Texas, are the ones that that come to mind right off the right off the bat. Yes, thank you for sharing that. Um, and uh, so they still have existing or kind of these scholarships that may either prohibit 
all individuals that are involved in the justice system or that there's some criteria um, maybe for some or certain type of offenses um, that are available is what that sounds like. So financial aid, which I know is is a challenge for even just general college students, but I'm imagining um, even a bigger challenge um, for you know, justice involved students. So how do they end up paying for, you know, school or getting the necessary resources they need if they, if it's, they can't necessarily apply for some state uh, funding? I think justice involved students have to scrape together um, just like so many other students do. Um, Many, many students work while they're in school to pay. Um, Of course, we know we have a student debt crisis in this country because so many students have to take out loans to pay for undergraduate college. Um, But, you know, just speaking of of the work problem, that's not, that's easier said than done, right? For a justice-involved person to be able to also get a job um, to help pay for college. Um, Another barrier uh, that we can, that I can mention here is that it's very common even for campus jobs to be a student employee that you would have to undergo a criminal background check. And so even on your own campus, once you're admitted, uh, to find a job could could also be a challenge and uh, that just makes it even harder to, to pay for college. And I think that segues into uh, what are some other barriers that they may encounter, you know, while they're just enrolled. Um, um, I, I imagine that there are a plethora of things that we could talk about here. The last major one that I would raise here is housing. Housing, housing, housing. I'm sure how many times have you heard that from your guests, Vankivia, that this is such a huge problem for justice-involved people. And it's also true for justice-involved students. Imagine you make it through that admissions process. You get admitted. Imagine you figure out how you're going to pay for college, but where are you going to live? Unfortunately, I do not have good numbers on how often this happens, but it is it seems increasingly common that universities are conducting background checks on housing applicants. So again, once you get through that admissions process, you're going to apply to live in a in a campus-owned residence hall or apartment building and then you get that criminal background check. And it's very again, common that you you would sort of go through a similar process with the, the with the housing administrators. They would review the results of your criminal background check, and they may determine that you're not allowed to live on campus. And then so what do you do? You have to go find housing out in the community. And we know how hard that is, especially if you have certain types of convictions. Um, people with sexual offenses, with drug offenses, with quote-unquote violent offenses have a very difficult time finding housing in the in the private market you know basically in your in your um let's just say in in the college's external community and it can also be a challenge to um uh get housing on campus and so what do you do some students um, are stuck and if you can't find housing it could mean that you're not able to go to college that semester um, because you just don't have all of those elements lined up yeah, and another thing that I was thinking about too is like uh, on since you brought up like different types of offenses, uh, obviously come with different restrictions, different conditions, um, and even different barriers. Sometimes they can be exacerbated depending on the type of offense that you do have. I was thinking about um, 
you know, if some people that are, you know, released and if they're on some type of DOC requirements and they're trying to pursue, you know, education or higher education, um, are there any, how, what are the conflicts there? Because I know sometimes like being on parole, a requirement is to have a job, but if you're trying to pursue education, like, do you have any information there? This would be a great conversation to have with a a parole officer to talk about their views on education. I've heard conflicting things. I've heard from students sometimes that their parole officer is very supportive of education and they think it's equally as important as getting a job or like it's a good substitute. Like if you're not going to go find a job full-time, sure, go to college full-time. Both are like equally important invaluable as far as a person's re-entry. Others I've heard education is not prioritized. In fact, it's it's devalued. It's it's viewed as less important. It's viewed it's viewed as a distraction from getting a job, getting housing. And so people, especially who were enrolled in a college program in prison and then they get out and then they want to continue their program. Maybe they want to finish their degree or, or go on to get a different degree. If they have a parole officer like that who discourages them from pursuing higher education, um, you know, obviously it's a, it's a major barrier to them completing their goals, but it's also, for lack of a better word, a big bummer, right? Like those people are, are, are devastated that they can't get back into school. Um, so there's a lot of variation here. I don't know if in some states it's because of policy choices that sort of push um, people towards education or away from education. But, you know, it's hard for me as someone who, you know, is deeply passionate about higher education to see that it, it has nothing but a good thing for someone to be, um, you know, involved with, even perhaps especially in the re-entry period. Um, so, but I wish I had kind of more insights into this. And I think that would be like a great um, uh, follow-up podcast. Yeah, I definitely think so too. I was, that's, it was just running through my mind of like, um, when you're talking about conditions of, you know, how supportive are universities of parole officers coming to visit um, just as involved students if, you know, that is their housing place or that is their workplace. Um, those are just kind of things that I was thinking about. Um, but I know that we've talked a little bit about structural barriers. Um, I wonder in your research, have you um, looked into, I guess, more practical individual barriers that justice involved students may encounter. And I guess, I guess what I'm looking for here is just like the adjustment to college. Um, you know, typically in some sense, a lot of them are non-traditional students um, and just navigating that process or you have any information there. I personally have not studied this, but many of my colleagues have, and this is a growing um, uh, topic in the literature. And you're absolutely right. First and foremost, when you interview justice-involved students about their experiences, they talk about the structural barriers that we talked about. They talk about the admissions process. They talk about paying for college, getting a job, housing. All of those things are kind of like first. Um, and you can understand why. Like those are basic necessities of, of life, basic needs. But then also like you obviously just have to be admitted to the university. But then once they're there, and also, I should say that since 100% of universities and colleges don't 
have an admissions process like that. There are some justice involved students who would say, like, I didn't have to go through that. California, for the most part, does not have this have these practices. Some of their private universities do, but for the most part, California public universities just decided never to ask criminal history questions on the admissions application. And that's just, you know, like perfect. So so students in California would say, like, well, I didn't have to deal with the admissions piece. But after those structural barriers, there are absolutely other um, other barriers that come up. Uh, one is stigma, which just you know is kind of pervasive throughout the reentry experience of probably every justice-involved person. So you'll hear students discuss the stigma that they experience um, with their faculty members, especially if they choose to share that they are justice involved, if they choose to share that they are justice involved in the context of a college class, students become very vulnerable in those moments. Um, and, and sometimes they describe it as a good experience where people were interested, people were um, supportive of them, but then other people are not. And um, you know, that can damage relationships. It can make students feel like they're not welcome. Um, it can make students feel like they are being discriminated, uh, discriminated against and that like negative actions are actually happening towards them, which, you know, absolutely does happen. Um, so those things are definitely happening beyond just the um, structural barriers. Yeah. And I'm, you know, We've talked about these barriers and I'm imagining like that is a whole nother follow-up episode too, especially since there's a growing um, literature review going on. Um, can you give us, um, I know our audience is probably like what I call the so what, who cares of like, why are we talking about this? Why is it important? Um, could you just give us, help us understand why it's important to address these barriers for justice involved students and um, why there is such a need to do this? There are a few reasons why I think this is really important. The first one just comes from my general belief about higher education, and that is that everyone deserves access to a high-quality, affordable education. It shouldn't matter if you have justice involvement or not. And there are so many motivations for why people choose to go to college. It might be for um, personal growth, the love of learning. You might be wanting to prepare for a career. You might want to um, get skills training for a particular job. Um, you might want to be preparing to go to grad school or um, uh, professional school, like, like law school or medical school. And so regardless of what your motivation is, you should be able to access a high-quality, affordable education. Another thing here related to that is that state governments right now really want more people to go to college. And most states have goals of, of like a certain threshold, like a certain percent of their population, they want to have completed college. And that's mostly uh, economics related. So when people have college degrees, they tend to make higher wages, which means there's more tax revenue for the state. And so my point here is that if 
colleges and universities and states are excluding justice-involved students or putting up barriers to them, they're not going to meet their goals. We need to be reaching populations. You, you said earlier, non-traditional. Another word that I would just use is adult. These are mostly adult learners, people who are probably not like fresh out of high school. These are probably people who had their criminal justice experience probably like in their early 20s, a lot of them. They might've been in jail for, like, I mean, one, five, 10, 20 years. Now they're adults coming out. And we want more of those adults to start and or complete their uh, higher education credential. And then the other thing here that's really important is this is about social justice. It's about racial justice, disability justice, economic justice, and probably lots of other categories because we know that the criminal justice system disproportionately affects people of color, people with disabilities, people from low-income backgrounds. And when more of those people experience um, barriers in higher education, it means we're essentially discriminating against those populations. So if we want to improve access to those groups in higher education, we need to knock down these barriers related to criminal justice involvement and really open up access to everybody. So those are just three reasons why I think this is really important. And, and there are you know many others as well. No, I agree. And I think they are all like just very great points. And um, I guess when I think about the literature out there just about in general of education and recidivism there's you know there's different opinions different debates about it but you know there is some type of linkage to where education can be very beneficial for some people that are trying to re-enter and um, trying to desist from criminal activity um, and I just think that that's another important reason of if we fix these barriers or we address these, um, then we can get people around the necessary social networks and all the different things that they need to maybe facilitate a better process. Um, so that leads me to asking you, what are some of the some of the efforts that have already been made to address some of these concerns? There is absolutely a growing movement to support justice-involved students happening at the local level, which would be like at individual universities, at the state level, at the federal level. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is the effort to, quote-unquote, ban the box. This is similar to ban the box in employment, in housing, and also in higher education. The idea... I guess the basic idea is to stop asking criminal history questions on the college admissions process. So there's been a lot of advocacy around that. Um, what is kind of a, a newer development is ban the box um, state level action. Right now, there are seven states that have passed laws that ban the box, although there's an asterisk on that. Usually, instead of ban the box, I, use, I like to call it move the box. What usually happens is um, in, in these states, the last one to do it was Virginia, colleges and universities are no longer allowed to put the criminal history question box on that first application that a student submits. That way, a student can know if they're like generally academically qualified to be enrolled at the university university. So the university or college communicates back to the student like, yes, you're you're qualified to enroll. And then after that, there's like a follow-up application where some colleges are allowed to 
um, uh, ask that question. So that's mostly what's happening in those state ban the box laws. It's better than nothing because like we talked about up front, that first question can be really scary. And if we can help people get one foot in the door and show to colleges that they are academically eligible, um, it should increase um, the, the rate that students are completing those applications. In other words, it's, it's not uh, pushing at, as many um, applicants away, and that's really important. So that's been happening, and there are other states that are pursuing that ban-the-box um, legislation. There's also been a couple states that have restored access to state financial aid. We talked about that before. Now, that's mostly for incarcerated students, but it's still worth mentioning. So New York, New Jersey, and Michigan recently have restored financial aid access to some of their programs or all of their programs to incarcerated students. Um, so those are some some important um, um, developments at the at the mostly like state level. Yeah, and I'm, I've actually been hearing uh, more about the what you were talking about the ban the box, and I've seen a lot of schools or just a lot of individuals advocating for that. Um, that yeah, just advocating for that to be done. Um, and I like the way you said it is more so move the box because um, essentially they still can ask up about criminal records and things like that. So, and I, I've read in some of your work, uh, you've done some stuff of, you know, what policies that should be reconsidered. Um, even I think I read, it was more like a news article, um, just even what the Biden administration could do to support justice involved students. Would you care to talk to us about more of those structural things that can change? And even with our current presidential uh, administration, some of the things that can be done there to support justice involved students? Much of my work that I do here at the Center for American Progress is at the federal level. Um, the thing about higher education in the United States is that it is mostly a state level thing and a local thing. So there are some things that we can do at the federal level, but but not as many. Um, so uh, something that we haven't talked about yet today, because we, we haven't focused on incarcerated students as much, but a really big topic right now is that Congress has, for the first time since 1994, restored federal financial aid access to people in prison to pay for college. So that's the big topic that's happening right now in Washington, D.C. And so the Biden administration is doing a lot of work right now to implement that program. But there's also some other things they can do to encourage colleges to do the right thing. They can encourage colleges to stop asking criminal history questions on the admissions application. They can encourage colleges to stop background checking students for every on-campus job and for housing. Um, there's also um, a, a thing, we have an opportunity right now to fix a tax law that affects justice-involved students. There's a tax credit called the American Opportunity Tax Credit, and this is um, a benefit that is for tax filers who are currently enrolled in college. Well you are not eligible for that tax credit if you've ever had a drug conviction. And so it's a, it's a major economic um, relief program that's designed for college students to you know, help with the expense of college, but it's off limits 
to people with drug convictions. And so there are currently advocacy efforts happening um, with, with Congress to repeal that ban and restore um, American Opportunity Tax Credit access to justice-involved students. So those are some things happening at the federal level. Okay, and what about strategies to support justice-involved students on the actual campus? What can be done besides, I guess, um, what we've talked about, what we've already mentioned? This is where I think there's the most opportunity to support justice-involved students, because like I said before, most of these policies that I've described are not coming from the federal government. Some of them might be coming from the state level, but most of the things we've described, things like the, the decision to add a criminal history question to your college admissions application, the, the decision to conduct criminal background checks on housing applications, those are choices that colleges make. It is not something for the most part that colleges are required to do by federal or state laws. And so the first thing that colleges and, and universities should do is eliminate those barriers that are not required by law. So that means dropping your criminal review history processes in admissions, in housing, and in employment. I think that's the sort of the basic thing. And as you um, mentioned, there are more and more student activists speaking up about this, and they are very, very influential. And so if any of you are on a college campus right now, this is an excellent topic to pick up. And I, I really do believe that um, students having a voice in this is really important, and it's really persuasive. Um, the next thing here is that colleges can and should create support programs for justice-involved students. And so, you you know, on, on most campuses, you can find programs for LGBTQ students, for students with disabilities, for um, students from different ethnic backgrounds. And those programs are designed to be tailored to the needs of those specific student populations. And we can do the same thing for justice-involved students. And many colleges increasingly um, more and more colleges are adopting these programs. The, the basic structure of these programs is usually um, ideally a full-time staff member who understands the experiences, the needs, the um, gifts that justice-involved students bring to campus, and they're able to provide them specific support. Um, that could be advising, it could be kind of just like uh, you know, personal kind of mentoring. Um, it could be programming, things like forming a club or um, a group where students can get together and socialize. And so those um, kinds of programs are really important. And I think they can be like really effective in um, making sure that justice-involved students are successful. That's one thing that we haven't talked about yet today, which is just that like once a student gets through all these barriers, whatever happens to them. Um, and unfortunately, we don't really have good data. We don't really know if justice-involved students um, graduate at the same rates, if they get the same types of grades that, that non-justice-involved students do. But having these kinds of programs is really important to make sure those students are successful. Um, another example of a type of student service that's really specific to the needs of justice-involved students is legal services. Many universities have actually um, a small office um, uh, dedicated to legal services. 
because college students have a lot of legal needs. Students have conflicts with their off-campus landlords. They might get DUIs. They might, um, anyway, lots of legal problems that college students get into. And when you have legal services, it's where usually a licensed attorney, maybe a paralegal, is um, uh, available on campus to provide legal support. And justice-involved students really need this service. They might need help with their probation and parole or something related to their conviction. They also need help and affordable access to um, lawyers to help with expunging or sealing their criminal record. They also might go to legal services if they're applying for graduate school or for a job or for housing, and they need legal advice on how to answer the criminal history questions. Sometimes it's, it's really actually technically difficult to answer those questions, and you need a lawyer to help say what you can and, and don't have to do. Um, so anyway, that's a service that's um, sometimes provided for free to all students on campuses. Sometimes there's a fee associated with it. Either way, it's really important that justice-involved students have access to uh, affordable legal advice. I'm actually glad you brought that up because one of my questions I was going to ask you was uh, what resources are available for justice-involved students to kind of help assist them through this process. And I think that is one thing um, in my undergrad, we didn't have a legal services department in, at my undergrad school, but here at my grad school, we'll, we do. Um, so I didn't even think about that as a resource and um, how imperative that may be to helping them kind of facilitate, you know, whatever processes that they may have to go through and talking about, you know, criminal convictions, history involvement. So I thank you for sharing that with us. The other, I think, just general resource that all students access is academic advising, career advising, or career counseling. And what's really important here is that those professionals are trained in how to support justice-involved students. This isn't an easy thing, but it's important. So imagine... Um, I'm a I'm a justice-involved student, and I go to um, an academic advisor to talk about my major. I want to major in English. I want to major in social studies education. I want to be a nurse. I need to be able to explain to the academic advisor my criminal record and get good advice on, am I going to be able to be a successful student if I'm in the nursing program or if I'm in the education program? Will I be able to do my clinical hours? Will I be able to do my student teaching hours? Um, will I be able to get a job after um, I graduate? And so academic advisors, you know, they don't need to have an encyclopedic knowledge of all of the barriers in every profession, but they need to be able to understand that students with criminal records have to think about those things to make sure that they don't spend four years studying a program and then finding out at the very end that you can't do your like capstone project or your clinical hours um, because of your criminal history um, or that you will never, ever be able to get a job in that field later. So we need academic advisors and career counselors to be knowledgeable about the effects of criminal records on all of those things. Um, and to be comfortable talking with students about it. I think, I think you know probably, Vankivia, that not everybody's comfortable with that. It makes people uncomfortable to hear that someone had um, 
a, a criminal conviction and to, to have to talk about like what happened and, and what are all of the, like the effects of that. So um, we need for college counselors, academic advisors, career counselors, even your financial aid administrators, your housing folks, basically all student services people just need to be able to be open and understanding when when listening to students' experiences and hopefully have some training in how to support those students. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that's where it's important for uh, us to continue conducting research on justice-involved students and translating that research into trainings that so we can go around and train advising or just all administrative individuals of how to interact with justice-involved students and how to understand their needs. Because like you said, they're not thinking about um, these thoughts or experiences that they may additionally have to go through because that's not their experience. So I do thank you for sharing that um, with me. I do want to ask um, a couple questions before we get off here. First, I want to make sure we didn't miss anything um, before I ask any questions. Do you feel like we have Dr. Custer or anything that we need to dive more into? We covered so much ground today. Um, I think we hit the main topics. Maybe the one thing that I didn't say right at the beginning, um, listeners might be wondering how many justice-involved students there are. So let me just chime in to say, I don't know, and I don't think anybody else knows either, um, because there are no state or federal laws that require colleges to track how many justice-involved students are on their campuses, and then like report that to some agency where we would you know, collect that data. So we really don't know, but let me just say, for so everybody understands, you have justice-involved students on your campus. Every campus has justice-involved students, whether you know it or not. And so it's really important that we have some of these um, support services in place, even if you don't realize they're there. Yeah, and I also think even if we had like the established like metrics or system to do that, there's a lot of, well, I guess if if they're checking the box, then they would have the information. But I do think there's also a lot of reluctancy to like just disclose that information from the jump sometimes too, which can make it really difficult to really determine how many um people are just as involved on campuses. Um, but I do thank you for sharing, letting people know, because that is true. There are just as involved students on the campus, whether we realize that or not. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask you is if the audience wanted to learn more information about just as involved populations, what type of resources, medias um, would you recommend for them to seek out? Fortunately, the term justice-involved student has stuck for a while. I think your listeners probably know there's lots of terms to describe people who have been involved in the criminal justice system, system impacted, criminal justice impacted, uh, justice-involved. But if you Google justice-involved college student, you're actually going to get quite a quite a few hits. That's like I said, it's kind of the the term that comes up now. So, um, and this is this is huge. You know, it was not like this that long ago where there was a clear identifiable term and then actual, you know, articles about it. Um, so 
this is this is Googleable, you know, to to just go searching for yourself. Of course, there's lots of academic literature on this. Um, that can be sometimes a little bit harder to access if you don't if you're not um, you know a student or working at a university. But that exists out there. But I'm also seeing more and more of this in the public media. Students, um, you know, describing their experiences, writing op-eds about the need to change certain policies. I would say the biggest thing that's happening right now are discussions about the expansion of college programs in prison. So that is sort of taking up most of the space right now in in print journalism and and just like conversations that are happening in social media. Um, so if, if people are interested in that, there's there's a lot there's a lot of that content coming out right now. Okay. And my last question for you is if you could leave the audience with one thing for them to remember um, about our topic, um, what would it be? I want to go back to the thing I said about how everyone deserves a high quality, affordable education. And that is certainly also true for justice involved students. Um, um, anybody who wants to pursue a higher education should be able to do that without um, major barriers. And when you put it like that, I think this topic becomes very uncontroversial. There shouldn't be concerns about, um, you know, people with criminal records enrolling in higher education, or even the the federal or state governments helping to pay for them to go to college. It's in everybody's interest, really, for everybody to get a college credential. And um, so I think that's the main takeaway here is that there's a lot to um, learn about this population. Uh, it's an interesting topic, but when it's all said and done, it's really just about affordable, high quality education for everybody. I really like that. And I think that's a great piece for us to end on. And Dr. Custer, I do want to say thank you for coming on More Life and just sharing your um, your very practical experiences as well as your research expertise. I'm sure that our audience has a lot that they can take away from this conversation today. So I just want to say thank you um, and appreciate everything that you've talked about today. Thanks so much. This was a, a pleasure. Always. I will say, uh, audience, I did find a link that talks about state financial barriers for students impacted by the justice system, and it has different state profiles. Um, so I will make sure I put that link at the bottom, as well as any information if you want to learn about Dr. Custer and his work. Um, as always, I do appreciate y'all for listening to us. And if you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on More Life please follow us on Instagram at More Life The Reentry Podcast and push that subscribe button at the top. Thank you. 